You're listening to County Conversations, a podcast brought to you by the New York State Association of Counties. I'm Ryan Gregoire, Legislative Director with NISAC. Today, we're joined by Lucy Welch, Orleans County Probation Director and President of the New York State Council of Probation Administrators, the association representing county probation departments. I am also joined by Bob Yusey, Warren County's Probation Director, and he is the Chair of the Legislative Committee for COPA. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank, Thank you, Ryan, for having us. Great. Well, just to set the stage here a little bit for our listeners, you know, there has been a ton of change in the way that county probation departments uh, conduct their work over the last really five years, I would say. You know, we we had a lot of changes to New York's criminal justice system, including raising the age of criminal responsibility, bail reform, Leandra's law. They've all added new responsibilities and challenges for county probation departments and staff without providing a lot of that flexibility needed to maximize the available resources to promote public safety and reduce recidivism. So that's really why we're here today talking a little bit about what COPA's priorities are for 2022, what the county perspective is in relation to probation services. So, um, you know, I just want to start uh, some things off uh, with both of you. Um, and maybe we'll go, Lucy, to you first, and then, Bob, you can add some, some flavor to it from your perspective as well. But can you each describe just the key functions of a county probation department and what the workday of a probation officer looks like? Well, Ryan, the, um, the, the three basic functions of a probation department are um, intake investigation and supervision. Those are the three things that we're tasked uh, by the law to do. Um, I would say that probably no day is uh, like the other. You know, probation officers come in very early in the morning. They start seeing clients. Often they will get a phone call um, regarding maybe a child at school that's having some problems and they have to, you know, go and attend to that. They may also have a client that's in crisis um, that may need some sort of a, you know, special assistance or may need to be, uh, uh, you know, a mental hygiene arrest or those types of things, they get a lot of interruptions throughout the day. So I know it's difficult for them to, uh, you know, see a lot of three things through in a, in a day's time. Um, but, you know, seeing clients uh, in the community, at home, at work, you know, where people are actually, you know, living their lives. Um, that's, that's what is mainly the functions of our probation department. I always tell my staff, it's very important that uh, you know you not sit behind your desk because this is really not a nine to five job. This is kind of a twenty four seven job, and anything can happen, you know, in a day's time. But um, seeing clients in the in the office, uh, performing urine screens, uh, conducting collateral phone calls with agencies such as uh, mental health agencies, such as uh, substance abuse uh, services agencies, uh, Department of Social Services. Uh, you name it, we're, we're in the thick of it on a daily basis, uh, trying to help our clients uh, navigate through the system and not reoffend. That's, that's a great summary, Lucy. Thank you for that. Bob, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? You know, I would just add, I think Lucy did a great job of describing it. And, you know, I think the important thing is 
no one day is, is like the other. And I think for probation officers who are tasked to do many duties, they come in with a schedule and the schedule probably gets blown up very quickly. Um, I think that's the interesting part of the job and why people come to probation and stay in probation because there's many things to do. And on a given day, uh, as Lucy described, there's a multitude of things going on from seeing people to doing PSIs, to dealing with courts, to dealing with different county agencies, drug testing, DNA testing, and, and uh, the various um, things that pop up during the day. So, um, you know, our people are out doing things. There's always something different that pops up and something that needs to be dealt with. And um, that's what makes the job of probation interesting. And so I guess what I'm hearing from both of you is really uh, it's all about giving back to the public and public service, helping people who who need a little bit of assistance. Maybe they're involved in the criminal justice system. Maybe you're providing preventive services to keep them out of that preventive system. Um, but it's really geared towards helping individuals uh, get on the right track, stay on the right track. Um, so it's got to be an incredibly rewarding uh, experience for, for you and for your teams. So thank you for, for sharing that with me. Um, Bob, you had just mentioned the word PSI, and I'm guessing most people listening to this might not even know what a PSI is, a pre-sentence investigation. Um, one of the probation director's top priorities this year is taking a look at PSIs and specifically with sentences uh, that are only up to 364 days in jail uh, when, when those have been negotiated for that term. So can you explain to everyone uh, what a PSI is and why COPA is, is looking for this modification in statute? Sure. I think when people think about probation, the, the first thing that pops to their mind is, is seeing people in the office, home visits, supervision. But a large part of what we do is it's called a pre-sentence investigation. And what a pre-sentence investigation does is it gives the court information on an individual, such as the prior legal history, description of the present offense, um, family dynamics, school history, employment, treatment, and anything else that would be relevant during a sentence. And what that does is give the court a comprehensive package of information so they can impose uh, you know, a thoughtful sentence. Uh, many people would say, well, most of the cases are plea bargained, and, and that's true. But a PSI also adds to that. And, and a lot of times we see it here that the court will have information that they didn't know prior to, prior to agreeing to a plea, and sometimes will modify the sentence. So a pre-sentence investigation is, a, is an important aspect of what we do. Um, we do them for misdemeanors and felonies. And on the felony level, the interesting part is the pre-sentence investigation of an individual sentenced to prison. That report follows them through the correction system. And many people in corrections is described it as the most important document that comes in and stays with an individual throughout the course of that. So PSIs are certainly an important part of what we do. They can be ordered uh, at any time by a judge. Uh, the required in certain instances. And what we're looking to do in this advocacy is a PSI currently is mandated for a sentence of, of up to six months. And a few years back, uh, the city of New York was granted legislation where they were able to waive a PSI 
for up to 364 days on cases that are negotiated where an individual for the most part has been incarcerated um, for a long period of time. Um, the, the sentence has been negotiated by the prosecutor, defense counsel, and agreed upon a judge. And the individual, and the individual is going to get a set period of time, you know, say 364 days. So in that instance, uh, if the court didn't want the PSI and all the parties agreed to it, they could waive the PSI and, and proceed to sentencing. And what that does is it frees up time uh, because if the PSI is not needed, you're not using uh, the allocations of resources for a department to, to do that. In a typical PSI, I think years ago we did studies and you know, we're talking about seven or eight hours of manpower time to do a PSI. So what we're looking to do is have that same legislation and that same benefit for the rest of the state. Um, like I said, that's happened a few years back. Uh, it's worked well in New York City. I think some of the issues that were brought up is, well, if you waive a PSI, will an individual get more jail time? Uh, and research indicates from what's happened in New York City that that's not true. Um, so again, it's, it's a valuable tool that we would have to save resources. I think the important part is that a court could order a PSI anytime they wanted to. So that's also a caveat that is in the law. So we're just looking for a uniform policy throughout the state of New York with regards to PSIs. Awesome. Thank you, Bob, for that explanation. Lucy, did you have anything you wanted to add on that issue from your perspective? It, just um, adding and piggybacking on what Bob said about freeing up the time. Um, you know, often we will see, uh, especially a repeat offender, um, not so much if it's a, an offender that's just uh, newly in the system and doesn't have a prior history, but for someone who is uh, a repeat offender, um, you know, they can be placed on probation in January, let's say, uh, they can violate their probation, you know, come, you know, June or July. Um, it doesn't always make sense to, uh, to do another PSI. Uh, often they'll have multiple crimes pending at the same time. Um, so waiving the PSI has been useful in a lot of different situations for us, um, just because of the, the, the lack of resources that we have. And then we're not, um, you know, writing up a new report um, each and every time, um, especially if somebody has many uh, conviction or many uh charges pending at the same time. You know, that's a good point. Tying up, you, you just talked about tying up resources. And before in our conversation, you talked about how important it was for people to get out from behind their desk and go and do home visits and meet with clients and help them connect to employment opportunities and really get them engaged and involved so they don't become a repeat offender down the road. And uh, this flexibility could help probation departments and officers uh, readjust their time commitment from rather than having to do a lot of these PSIs that might frankly not be necessary. I, I agree with that a hundred percent, Ryan. It's, you know, I, when I was a probation officer, I used to tell my, um, my clients all the time, um, you know, I'm, I'm just driving the car, you know, you're, you're driving the car, I'm in the backseat kind of giving you directions um, you can, you can follow those directions or you cannot follow those directions. And in each one of those courses of action have consequences. You know, one of the things that, but well, two of the things that we're trying to do simultaneously is prevent the offender from reoffending 
and also, um, you know, protecting the interest of public safety. And sometimes that is a very fine line to walk. Sure, that that can't be an easy task. Um, you know, I, I want to switch to your uh, the second priority issue for probation departments this year. And it's granting county probation departments the flexibility to quickly make an application for a temporary order of protection as part of the adjustment process. Can Lucy, can you explain the importance of that and, and what it would mean uh, for your staff and the clients you serve? Yes, um, Ryan, when a, when a youth um, becomes char- you know, discharged with an offense and they get an appearance ticket or, uh, and they come to the probation department uh, for the adjustment process, the whole point of the adjustment process is to keep them out of the court system. But unfortunately, we need the court system to issue a stay away uh, order of protection. So let's say a youth is charged with, uh, say, a burglary charge. And the homeowner, when we contact the, the victim, the homeowner, um, you know, one of the, the requests of the homeowner is to make sure that the child doesn't have any con- any more contact with them. Um, right now, we don't have an avenue to be able to uh, contact the court and uh, compel the court to issue an order of protection for the victim in that situation without uh, petitioning the entire case to uh, court for um you know, the process that the court's going to, the, is going to undertake. So what we want in this situation is to be able to continue the adjustment process through the probation department, which if we're going through the intake process, not involving the court, um, we want the ability to be able to contact the court and compel them to issue an order of protection for the victim without actually having to petition the court, uh, petition the case into court and have the youth go through the entire uh, court process. Uh, that completely makes sense to me. It seems like that would help streamline the process and uh, just make it better for the for the youth who's involved with that situation. It really is a win-win situation, in my opinion, Ryan, because it's uh, it's keeping the youth out of court if we're able to adjust right. it and not have them. And also, it also gives uh, protection to the victim, um, you know, who is important in this equation as well. Okay, um, Bob, I wanted to uh, switch gears for a minute here. You had a case in Warren County, wasn't driving well intoxicated, but it was a boating well intoxicated incident. There have been a lot of situations across the state, uh, not just in Warren County, but all over the place, um, where individuals have been driving while under the influence with a child in the car. And the state legislature passed a law, it's called Leandra's Law, which automatically um, uh, automatically places a felony on the first offense to driving drunk when a person under the age of 15 is in the vehicle and their BAC is at 0.08 or higher. This was, you know, a unanimous bill that passed the legislature There was a terrible accident in New York City back in, I don't know, like 2009, I think, um, when, you know, this poor child was um, killed. Her name was Leandra Rosado, was killed on the Henry Hudson Parkway in New York City. And there was a bunch of other kids 
who were injured at the same time. So this is a pretty serious offense. It's in, it's regarding individuals who, again, are driving under the influence and have children in the car. Um, COPA and the probation departments are looking for a little bit of a modification to the law. And uh, on the on the program this year is a priority to eliminate the requirement that there be a sentence of a conditional discharge or probation for a Leandra Law case when the defendant has been sentenced to a term of imprisonment. So uh, can you explain to everyone why you would want that flexibility in this situation, Bob? And then Lucy, maybe if you have anything else you would like to add, feel free to jump in. Sure. Sure. Uh, DWI is a very serious offense. Uh, for those of us who work in upstate New York, uh, the majority or a high percentage of our cases are DWI cases. Uh, rural areas, people need to drive. We don't have mass transportation. Uh, so we get quite a bit of DWIs in, in my department, probably 25% or higher are DWI cases. And Leandra's Law, Ignition Interlock is, is a, a very good law. Uh, ignition interlocks do work when they're done properly. Um, no question that that's it's a great thing. What we're looking to do in this instance is an individual gets sentenced to prison for a DWI. They go to state prison and the court is mandated as a part of that sentence to have a requirement that once the individual is out of prison that they either have a term of a conditional discharge or probation with the ignition interlock component attached to it. And the reason we're looking to eliminate that is because when an individual comes out of prison, for the most part, they've served the majority of their time and we have no ties to that individual. Um, we're not parole, we're probation. So they get out um, and then they're required to do ignition interlock. And I can tell you from history, and I, and I think Lucy will back this up, that uh, for the most part, these people have no desire to comply. They've done the maximum term they can do. So putting an ignition interlock component to be monitored by a local probation department, where most of us not only do the monitoring for probation, obviously, but many of us do the monitoring for conditional discharge, um, doesn't make any sense because the individual uh, has done their time. They've been in prison for two, three years, um, and they have no desire to have contact with the local department. Not saying that because someone doesn't want to have contact with the department, we shouldn't. But the requirement doesn't make sense that if you impose the maximum amount of incarceration to add an ignition interlock component to be monitored for by a county agency, uh, it doesn't really work. And if we violate these people or bring them back to court, the court has no mechanism to impose a sentence on them. So there's no teeth in the law. It doesn't make sense. And again, we talked about resources on a county level uh, that we need to do. Um, we all have limited resources, limited budgets. You know, that's one thing, again, that's just tying us up for things that um, aren't practical and don't work. And just to emphasize that point, Bob, you know, for our listeners, we're talking about individuals who are being released from state incarceration, from a state prison, not a county jail. Probation departments work with our clients who are uh, either in county jail or have been released from county jail or they're trying to prevent people from going and becoming arrested. Uh, we do not work with, we, we, 
it's not our responsibility at the county probation level to be working with individuals who have been released from state incarceration. So I think um, it's important to emphasize that, you know, this modification, a, a case of Le- a Leandra Law defendant should not be placed on probation monitoring with interlock when they're not a classic probation client. They're a, if anything, uh, it should be either state parole, but it certainly shouldn't be uh, within the hands of the county probation department. Lucy, did you have anything else you wanted to add on that? Ryan, I think that's the biggest uh, point that I would want to want to make, and, and you and Bob have already uh, kind of set the stage for that. Um, you know, imagine this person coming out of state prison. They, you know, often are under the supervision of uh, New York State Parole. And then if they're on for a DWI and they have a conditional discharge for the DWI, um, they are under the supervision of both New York State Parole and New York State Probation at the same time. And the problem that I see with that, in addition to the resources, is um, you are explaining to the, to the, the client, the offender, that if you violate the terms and conditions of your conditional discharge, Um, you know, you will be returned to court and could face additional consequences. The problem is there is no additional consequences and they figure that out pretty quick. And then we are running around, um, you know, we're getting notices from the interlock uh, company saying that they, you know, that there's various violations or, um, you know, starting the the interlock with uh, a positive BAC there's all sorts of things that, and then we can go out and check on those things, certainly, but if it becomes a chronic situation and we have to report it to the court, there's no additional consequences. So therefore, I think you're really emboldening bad behavior uh, when someone is not following their conditions, has no intentions of following their conditions, and there's no recourse that we can take as either New York State Parole or New York or um, a, pro, a county probation department or the court system. So it really emboldens that negative behavior, which one of the main reasons that we're, we're dealing with people is to try to um, you know, change a lot of those behaviors. And that certainly is not a way that we are uh, empowered to be able to make any changes with people. Yeah, so that seems like a, uh, a common sense kind of policy action. There's no state fiscal to that. So um, that should be something that that we should be able to advance through session. So, you know, Lucy and Bob, I, I want to pivot now and, and talk about a couple issues. The last two priorities on the program for probation departments, they are in regard to uh, the Raise the Age statute that was passed back in 2018, enacted back in 2018. And um, the first issue, Bob, I'm, I'm going to go to you on this one, and then Lucy, if you could take up the second. But the first is uh, a request to authorize law enforcement agencies to issue appearance tickets instead of an arrest in an immediate arraignment when an AO, an adolescent offender, is charged with most Class D felonies. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you have in mind for this modification? for this population and why it's why there's a struggle with um, assisting kids, AOs in, in particular? Sure. So with respect to raise the age, that's a piece of legislation that's been in effect now for 
a few years. And, and with that, we have a new class of offender called an, an adolescent offender. And that's for an individual between the ages of 16 and 18 who's charged with a felony. And when that individual is apprehended by law enforcement, they're compelled to bring that individual in front of a court if in session. And, and a lot of times they're not in session. So they have to find a local magistrate that would be on call. And, and once you do that, there's county agencies that are responsible for finding specialized secure detention beds. And, and, and we've talked many times, and NYSAC has been a, a great partner with local probation departments with this trying to advocate uh, for more specialized detention beds. There, there is a lack of detention beds in the state of New York, and it's a, it's a difficult process to access them. And if you access them, uh, I'm in Warren County in the Lake George area. I may have to, or our sheriff's department may have to go to, to Buffalo, Erie County, where, there, where, is a, where there's a bed to bring an individual. So what we're looking for is the flexibility for law enforcement on most class D felonies, which don't involve violence or acts against individuals that have the discretion, discretion to issue an appearance ticket as opposed to getting everybody together. Uh, when I say in front of a court, it's not only the judge, it's uh, many county personnel, uh, local law enforcement, court personnel, and, and a lot of times a judge will insist, if you're gonna come in front of me, you better have a bed for me. And if there's no bed, um, that's eight, nine hours of manpower, which may be after hours uh, trying to find something. So law enforcement, in my opinion, particularly where I work has very good discretion. Uh, so if they apprehend an individual with a class D felony, if we give them the opportunity to issue an appearance ticket to go in front of the court uh, when the court's in session again, it gives flexibility not only uh, for the court system, but for county agencies that are tasked with finding a specialized secure detention bed when many times there simply isn't one. So uh, we're looking to streamline the process. We're looking to have a common sense solution and um, leave it to the discretion of the professionals who operate in that venue. Yeah, and these, like you said, Bob, are not violent felonies. Uh, against an individual. So we're talking about, you know, cases of fraud, uh, possibly, you know, some small burglary type of events. And, and like you said, it's up to law enforcement at their discretion to decide, is this appropriate for an arrest? Or can we just give them an appearance ticket and have them come to court, you know, the next day that it's in business? So that does, you know, it certainly makes sense. And it all falls within the purview of, you know, really there's, there is a lack of specialized secure detention beds across the state. And, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a child from Warren County to get in a car and drive six hours to Buffalo to then be brought back to Warren County the next day to appear in front of a court. Um, so that, that request certainly uh, is another great common sense solution that makes sense and will also help individuals who, uh, AOs who are charged with these class D fel felonies as well. <clears throat> so, uh, Lucy, staying on the vein of, um, raise the age here and, and dealing with our youth. Um, you know, we just talked about some of the issues with trying to find detention beds. Uh, the last request from the probation departments 
is to allow law enforcement agencies to deliver an AO or a juvenile offender and juvenile delinquents to detention facilities after business hours without a securing order until the next business day. So why is, why is that so important? What's, uh, what does it involve to try and get a securing order? Well, generally we have um, people in Orleans County, we have probation officers who are on call uh, you know, 24 seven for um, juvenile delinquents, adolescent offenders. So essentially what happens is um, a, lot, a lot of times when a law enforcement agency comes into contact uh, with um, an adolescent offender, juvenile offender, juvenile delinquents, oftentimes they will call us immediately to let us know what the situation is and we'll try to work through that together. Uh, I agree with Bob, what Bob said earlier that, you know, um, the, the law enforcement agencies are, are, are very competent when it comes to, is this something that we can, you know, taking that, giving them the discretion to be able to look at a situation and say, is this something that, you know, we could handle, um, you know, on our own, or do we need to, uh, to get somebody else involved? Years ago, when I was a probation officer, that's how things ran. Um, we didn't have adolescent offenders, of course, at that time, but we did have juvenile offenders and we did have juvenile delinquents. Um, and the police in the middle of the night would make a determination that this child needs to be held uh, in a facility. Sometimes it's because the, uh, the, the child can't be home. A lot of times the parents will say, this child cannot remain in my home. I don't have any control over them. Uh, they need to be sent somewhere else. Uh, where, where there's a situation where a foster care placement would not be appropriate, um, the police really need to have the ability to sign what we call sign in a child uh, at a detention facility without having the court involved. Um, it, you know, have, getting the court involved is, you know, it, the police would then, somebody would be contacting um, the district attorney's office or the county attorney's office, depending on the situation. Uh, two in the morning, and then the judge has to come out to issue the securing order. Um, it, it's it's really a lot of uh, kind of red tape that you know really isn't necessary at that point because you've got the the law enforcement agencies and you've got the probation officers. Sometimes child protective services is involved. They're making that call that you know this child needs to be placed in detention, and right now we don't have the ability to do that. Uh, the police have not been given that, afforded that opportunity. Um, there are some that contend that the law has not changed and does allow law enforcement agencies to deliver uh, adolescent offenders and juvenile offenders and JDs to a detention facility, but it's been tried uh, several times without the securing order, and each time we get turned away uh, from by the facility. And then what happens is if there's no place for the child to go, the police end up having to um, keep that child in custody until the court can actually see them. And if we're talking that this event, you know, this incident happens on a Friday at, let's say, uh, you know, 11 p.m., um, they may have to keep that child in their custody until Monday morning when the court is in session. And, and that's really no good for the child as well. Uh, they're better off in a facility. Um, if that's what it's coming to, uh, you know, where people are trained to deal with their issues, can administer medication, all sorts of other things. 
um, instead of being in uh, sometimes the custody of law enforcement for that time until the court comes in session. So my understanding is that the law is already written that way. It's just the facilities are not allowing, uh, the detention facilities across New York State are not allowing uh, a police sign-in is what we used to call it. Well, well, that certainly makes sense as well, Lucy. You know, I, I think just to recap for everyone, you know, we're, we're asking for flexibility to help kids, right? We started this podcast off by talking about how the role of a probation officer in a probation department is to help individuals uh, get back on the right track, so to speak, and, and also prevent them from entering into the system to begin with. All of these proposals, all five of these proposals, um, achieve that mission or, or would help to achieve that mission. So they're all common sense legislative fixes. There are no fiscals attached to any of these. Um, but certainly this is a package of legislation that would improve our criminal justice system here in New York. And, you know, with that, I just want to thank both of you for taking the time to give us, you know, a look ahead into what 2022 has in store for um, county probation departments. And of course, for all of our listeners, you can find all of these policy priorities on NYSAC's website, www.nysac.org slash advocacy. And you can find our legislative program there as well. So with that, again, thank you, Bob. And thank you, Lucy, for joining us. Thank you for having us, Ryan. We really appreciate you helping us, um, you know, advance these priorities and, uh, and helping us bring some attention to them. Thanks for listening to this episode of NYSAC's County Conversations podcast. Keep tuning in for more county government-focused conversations, and make sure to subscribe to stay up to date.